Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Sentinel. Um, in the Sentinels are known trope. This is the second of four podcasts that we've designed specifically for the Sentinel and Guide trope to go along with our Year of the Sentinel celebration on Rough Trade. Today is uh, March 1st, and this is our first day of signups for Rough Trade for April 2020. And we've already got like 15 or 16 um, signups. I think 16 the last time I looked. Yeah, 16. So it's pretty cool. Um, we usually average between 40 and 50 for the Sentinel, but this is um, th that's usually in the summer. So um, April is going to probably be a little bit different, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit missed, maybe a little bit more. I mean, we've had upwards of 80 signups for April in the past. So um, we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> um, so when it comes to writing the Sentinels, our known trope, I think it's important that you have a, um, a sense of what you want your universe to look like and that you consistently write it that way across works because it helps build your own personal fanon and your readers know what to expect. Now you can tweak it here and there to serve your story, to make it work, to add things to it. But the, the more work you do on the front end in creating your own Sentinels or Known Universe, the less work you have to do later. And, you know, you can drop in, you know, four or five years down the road and pick up a universe that you haven't played with in a very long time. And you've already got all your world building done. And that's like, that's awesome. Like the Alpha Chronicles, which is... Um, a Sentinel and Guide uh, collection I have on my site is uh, I built my world building for the awakening. And then what a decade later, I wrote three more stories set in that universe. And I'd already done all that work. So it was like, it was really easy to accomplish because I'd already done all my world building. And you can take somebody else's fan in, you take your, you know, you know, and build on it. You can pick out parts of this you like and parts of this you like. You can pick out parts of my stuff you like or stuff, you know, wh whoever that you like and put it together and make your own fandom when it comes to the Sentinel and Guide trope. And it often works really well across the board. One of the things that um, I don't explore and only tried to do once in the Sentinel and Guides, our known trope is the platonic pairing. And I did it, um, I tried to do it with Sam and um, Daniel in um, Sentinels of Atlantis, but quickly, very quickly, you will you will take note of in the gathering, that fell to pieces because I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. It's, and maybe it's because the one or two stories that I read in the Sentinel fandom with this concept with a platonic bond, um, quickly became an abusive situation for Blair. Blair wasn't allowed to have any sort of life outside of his Sentinel. Even if Jim got married and had kids with some woman, Blair had to be um, celibate and um, isolated. And sometimes he wasn't even allowed to talk to other people. Like at all ever. Like his whole entire job was to be alive for Jim Ellison. And it's like that that that's it. That that's what he did. He didn't talk to anybody else. He didn't touch anybody else. He only ate the things that Jim um approved of. I mean, it was just like it 
Granted, you don't have to write a platonic pairing that way, but that's the way it's skewed very often in the Sentinel fandom to the point where it was um, offensive to look at. And when I would see it, and when I would see a platonic pairing, I would nope, I'm noping out. So I tried to do it in Sentinels of Atlantis, but it quickly became, because of my headcanon around um, uh, bonding and sex, it quickly, their pairing felt less to me as a writer so I had to change it I had to um kind of open up their relationship so that um so that they could achieve the um circumstances that I was comfortable writing in when it comes to the sentinel and god dynamic and one of the first stories I read in the sentinel it was actually it wasn't a fusion even though it was multiple sentinels it was a uh, crossover it was sort of like an awakening of sentinels where uh, sentinels other than jim were were coming online and it was a crossover with stargate uh, it was like one of the first times i had read you know more than jim being the sentinel and um it had platonic bonds some people had sexual bonds but they were actually more platonic bonds in the story than there were um sexual bonds people well, well bonds that had you know a sexual re- relationship and it, it, i i really enjoyed the story um but as time passed and i you know read other stories and my preferences around uh, sentinel guide were more fully formed the level of intimacy i believe in ex- exists in a bond um for instance would preclude things like sibling sibling bonds you know, like a brother, which which was a fat feature in the story. There was like brothers and sisters could be, and actually quite common, I think, for brothers and sisters to, siblings to be Sentinel Guide. Like I said, it worked for that story. It was a really well done story. It's just ultimately my headcanon started to, um, you develop your own headcanon. You develop your own view of things. And as a writer, it getting past your own headcanon isn't isn't at all necessary there's no reason to try to get you know to try to deal with your own headcanon um we often set our our headcanon aside to read um other people's works but there's no reason as the writer for you to do that your headcanon is fine it is better i think to have a fully developed headcanon that you really explore in your own writing because it allows you to be very consistent if you're constantly changing the way i don't mean micro details i mean just fundamentally the way your sentinel guide dynamics work it's fine if you want to if you want to explore new things but you can really as kira mentioned fully explore um world building and really know it if you fully develop it and you really get into it in multiple stories so um my head can developed in a way that would preclude platonic bonds basically i kind of allude to platonic bonds being possible um for like people who are ace but in um vicious i talk about how that would happen but uh like sibling bonds i don't think i would ever ever write that i think it's just too intimate a relationship i think it would i would be uncomfortable writing it but that's but that's because of my headcanon about how close that relationship is you don't have to write the relationship being that close you know but i would also say that if you're not going to have them be in a relationship that you need to be careful so careful with your world building because you don't want to have a situation where you have um, say uh, an ace sentinel 
an asexual sentinel and um, they bond with somebody who's not asexual and you have a deep input, you know, empathic connection between your sentinel and guide which means every time your guy the, the sentinel guy gets laid he's pushing all of these sexual emotions onto his sentinel that's gross yeah that actually sounds horrifying you don't want to create a situation where your sentinel is um extremely heterosexual uh who has a really deep in, in, um, empathic um, uh, connection with his guide who is a gay man who has to spend most of his nights feeling his sentinel have sex with a woman. So if you're going to have your partners not be sexual and have fundamental differences like that then they cannot have an empathic bond. They have to be able to shut that shit off otherwise you're writing something extremely abusive. So it's just, it's something to just be careful with making sure that there's, if you follow things through to their logical conclusion, like, like having an empathic bond with, you know, one, one side of a sentinel guide pairing being ace and having an empathic bond, that would be a little, that seems, I mean, follow that through to its logical conclusion. It feels uncomfortable. Um, so just think about when you're, when you're developing what kind of sentinel you want to write. I mean, we're mostly focusing on the Sentinel tonight, but you have to think about also the guide side of it because you're developing these things as a harmonious unit and therefore your world building about both of them needs to mesh. Um, but specifically when it comes to major Sentinel tropes, we've talked a little bit about um, on other podcasts, but it bears mentioning again, since this is the, the Sentinel podcast. Um, you have to really think long and hard about what you're going to do. If you're going to, if you're going to allow sentinels to be criminals, if you're going to write the criminal sentinel, you really need to carefully manage the ripples of that. Because to me, one of the ways I manage the privacy ripples, the lack of privacy that a society with a lot of sentinels would have to deal with. And the, the, the feelings people would have about that is that sentinels are almost incorruptible. Um, it's because it's easier to do it that way than to deal with people being suspicious and suspicion being aimed at tribal protectors. That could actually go dystopian very quickly. The you know sentinels conscripted into service, um, sentinels having to be registered, sentinels having to wear a, a visible mark or a visible garment or something so that people could separate themselves from them or avoid them if they wanted to. So you have to be very careful about what you you do in 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 regards to um sorry I got a little distracted by the chat room for a second there. What you do about um and that kind of thing. Um to make sure that you aren't putting in something that is implicitly you don't want people following the logical conclusion of your world building and coming up with an ugly answer because just because you didn't write your sentinels doing something ugly doesn't mean it's not implicit that the ugliness is there. Um, somebody asked me what, um, how, somebody asked them, not me, somebody asked in the chat room about how, how 
genetic matching works as a trope. Um, and this has come up before. Some people have mentioned that people don't understand how genetic matching works, if genetics work, if they think that people would have matching genetics. I think that's being a little literal. And coming from the person who's super literal, that says a lot. Matching <laughs> meaning, meaning it's complementary. This is the person who matches you, not this is the person who is the same as you. So I typically use protein markers a little bit more than genetic marking, genetic matching. But by matching, it's sort of like when a dating service runs your bio through the system and they come up with a match. It doesn't mean it's somebody who's a clone of you. It's somebody who's compatible to you. So, um, so when we're talking, I, I believe when most people who talk about, and certainly when I talk about genetic matching, it means it's looking for the, the genetic profile that would be a complement to yours to some degree of match, quote unquote, match euphemistically, not match as in literally the same. But anyway, when you're, when you're deciding what your sentinel trait um, is, I do think that deciding if you're going to have sent sentinels be criminals, that you really need to work on what the ramifications of that choice are. Um, and you can't, the author hand wave of convenience is a powerful tool, but if your hand wave of convenience doesn't, doesn't, pass a suspension of disbelief test, it doesn't work. Because you can you can hand wave as much as you want, but if your audience can't get pat can't get their suspension of disbelief there, if your readers left, right, and center their suspension of disbelief, you know, have like moved to Australia, it your hand wave is it doesn't it just doesn't work. You can't do it that way. It's ineffective. It's an ineffective authorly device to hand wave away something that you haven't thought through and consider the ramifications of. Um, so consider that. Consider if you want to have a corrupted sentinel. And if you do, what it means. Now, I typically have sentinels becoming dormant. They go offline if they become corrupt, fall into corruption. Um, and corruption, honestly, to me, is based on the tribal values, right? Which is what which allows sentinels to be on opposite sides of a war. Because what they're what they're dedicated to protecting all depends upon who they're what tribe they're part of. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. Okay. Right. They protect their tribe, not all tribes. So just you know, just just think it through. Be careful with it. Um, you can you and and you'll find you may find that perhaps in in doing that that there's a story maybe that's beloved for you that you hadn't before you started writing sentinel you hadn't considered that it doesn't pass a suspension of disbelief test you can still love a story that that sort of maybe flops the suspension of disbelief that's all right um you can go okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna do i'm gonna plug that that little that little uh, world building hole so that my my story doesn't have this obvious ripple that I just had never considered before I decided to start writing the Sentinel. And I've done that. When I went from reading the Sentinel to writing the Sentinel, I went, because I started thinking through more of the plot issues. I went, wow, I really enjoyed this story. And man, has it got a plot hole you could drive a truck through. Um, and that's cool. And I still love the story. Some of those stories, I still love stories from the, you know, from the very beginning that had to me what now look like giant plot holes. My enjoyment is not deterred. Well, true. That's true, Dark. Sometimes 
you are looking to see if where where it goes. Um, in SNG known universe, does Jack O'Neill take perverse pleasure in referring to the SG program and letting people assume it's a Sentinel Guide military thing? I mean, if you want to write it that way. But I honestly don't see Jack O'Neill as being that kind that kind of indiscreet. He wouldn't have got where he was if he was. True. Him him just being on the street referring kind of blithely to um Sentinel Guide things in public might be a little indelicate. So if anybody has any particular, I, I will, I will very quickly lose um, questions. Um, so if anybody has questions about specific uh, Sentinel tropes you want us to discuss, um, drop them in the ask a question for the podcast channel so that we don't, we don't lose your question and we're not trying to ignore anybody. Well, that's a really interesting question because what but what Jim is doing in the show when he's looking around a corner or down a cable channel. What do you mean cable channel? I'm going to need more information. I think your British just got in the way of my of, of my American. Okay, so what um, what Jim is doing in the show is he is piggybacking his senses. And this is a, I would call this a psionic plane thing, where he's using his hearing and pushing his sight with it. And that is more about giving your sentinel a extrasensory perception ability. Yeah, the, the the foundation for that is in canon, but I admit I typically write it that only bonded sentinels can do that because they're they get their connection, their their big connection to the psionic plane through their guide, and so they're that's part of the bond. What this you know the, that's part of the bond is that they're able to use their connection to their guide to further their senses, because that's why I write that sense sentinels become stronger sentinels when they bond is because it's not just about stabilizing their senses; it's about that direct tether. Their guides are like psionic, and it allows them to push their senses further. So even though Jim and Cannon could piggyback his senses. Um, I've adapted that in the Sentinels and Guide verse for my stuff to be only bonded Sentinels can do sensory piggybacking. But that's a, that's a situation where Fanon saw something in canon and made it work for them. Um, also, you don't have to you don't have to keep your question on the current topic. Just here's the channel. Um, you have a lot of that's the channel. Drop in there. Leave your question, and if it's if we have to back up to answer answer a question on a topic we discussed five minutes ago, we can do that. We'll just lose them if they're in the main chat. I'm trying to remember if I ever used the piggybacking in a fic that I have online, and I don't think I have. But I also don't remember what I ate for breakfast this morning, so. I mean, you may have more referenced it than used it outright. Outright, Lady Holder saying I did. Can you refresh my memory? In the Awakening. Okay, what did he, what what did Jim do in the Awakening? I remember them using their sense of smell to to hunt for Elizabeth. Well, I had a reader tell me I can't believe you turned Jim um, Ellison into a bloodhound. I was like, really? I wasn't the first one to do that. I'm pretty sure Cannon did it first. <laughs> What do they think he's like some kind of sacred puppy who can't be <laughs> put to work? <laughs> but I don't remember any piggybacking where they use more than one sense. 
the sacred puppy. That's right. I mean, no, just his hearing. Well, actually, John used his hearing and his empathy. But I wouldn't say he was piggybacking then. I I guess he might have used his empathy to piggyback his hearing through the gate. I I would say it's a little bit of an extension of the same skill set, the wake. Especially because he was doing it through the gate. Yeah, yeah, that and that and that happened in Sentinels of Atlantis. So I would say he probably used his empathy. He piggybacked his hearing on his empathy through the gate. Um, I mean, the term piggyback is not on your site. So what is it on my site? Piggyback. Oh no, I probably would not have used that word piggyback because I don't actually like that word. <laughs> it seems so. Juvenile? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure I would not have used that word. Um, you know, in in Duality, which was a Harry Hermione fic, um, it could be said that Harry used his magic first and then his senses to hunt for Hermione after she apparated. But st- I'm still not sure that would be considered piggybacking. Yeah, I've at least referenced it. I don't know that I've had a Sentinel actually like actively. Hmm, I may have had one time where I referenced that they did it, but more more I reference it than have them do it because um, it always it they is use a this. Bit... Go ahead. It's just, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd thing, and it's one of those things you kind of you kind of need to put some careful thought to. You know, like, how are you going to do it? Because I would imagine the most beneficial use of sensory piggybacking is room with no no visual access, and but you can hear, and you send your sight along with what you're hearing, which I think is what they did. Maybe. I think they did that with, uh, yeah, 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 Dom, Dom at, at the beginning of a stick around. He, he was doing a lot of, actually, he was doing piggybacking all night. I forgot about that. Um, Because Tony Stark pointed out that there was no sight line between what Dom was. um, But Dom was, now I have to say, Dom is an aberration that he he could do the piggybacking without being bonded. But Dom was an aberration through that whole story. It was was subtle, but he was weird. Um, But as long as you keep yourself consistent when you're determining how you're going to use these gifts in your stories, you'll be fine. Because your reader wants to suspend their belief when it comes to this kind of thing. Their disbelief in this kind of situation. They want to go with you on this journey. You just need to be consistent. Someone said in the chat room, unless it's crack and then you just have to be funny. I don't agree. Um, I will read crack pretty rarely. But when I do, if it's inconsistent, I'm not going to read it. My sus- Yeah, my suspension of disbelief is in a different place for crack. But the story has to, for me, has to hold together somehow. If it's just all over the place and nothing is consistent, and it just, I can't. I can't. Also, so when you're working with your Sentinel, um, when you're when you're just trying to decide what, how you're going to have your Sentinel's gifts, usually they do some kind of rating scale. I do think rating scales are pretty much human nature, right? They're going to attempt to rate the level of their gifts on some kind of scale. You don't have to use that. That is definitely a, a fandom trope. You don't. You're not bound by doing that. Um, one to one to five is common. One to six is common. Um, one to ten also common. 
Uh, I think the sixth thing is like, you know, they probably started off rating Sentinels on a scale of one to five. And then they had some that were just so fucking strong. They had to put in a number six. Um, So what you, so you just need to think about like what is the application for your sentinel right i would think we typically talk about it is a very common trope anyway that sentinels gravitate towards military and law enforcement i put in that they gravitate to it because if they're like biologically geared to be tribal protectors they're going to go where they can protect the tribe generally for the most part you have to be, but you have to be careful about like mandated service and that kind of thing. Is think about what it implies about your world if sentinels are being forced to serve, as opposed to the fact that they're like kind of geared in the brain to want to protect the tribe. Um, but in the military, I would think how a sentinel uses their senses is going to depend very greatly depending upon what branch of service or what type of law enforcement they're in. A small town sheriff is going to use his senses very differently than a special forces Marine. You know, it's just, it's just going to be different in the, in the military. It could be that um, sight is like one of the key senses, right? They use an urban sentinel is probably not going to be as dependent on sight. They're probably going to be very dependent on what they hear and unfortunately what they smell. Mm. And because the world is a smelly place and more so in urban areas. But when a crime has been committed, okay, think about law enforcement sentinel. When a crime has been committed and they're trying to find the perpetrator, while they may be able to search for clues visually, they're going to hunt that perpetrator down with their nose. Unless they've had some really horrific experiences with their nose and they've practically shut that down altogether. True, but we've talked about if, if they if they are turning off their senses, are they a sentinel that starts to move into voluntary dormancy if they're constantly turning off one sense? Um, but you have to like think about that, right? So at least in my um, yeah, but temporary it, overload and like permanent overload are two entirely different things. Right, but you said they've had bad experiences and they've turned. Yeah, I mean, off. but I was talking to the chat room. Oh, okay. Because um, Dom did it in Stick Around, or no, it was a sequel. But he was just a temporary. He just temporarily overloaded when it comes to his when it came to smell because of the um, because of the grenades. So it isn't the same thing as just cutting it off kind of permanently. Yeah, I would think depending upon the Sentinel, they'd have to screen them for what kind of issues they would have. Like, are they susceptible to motion sickness? Can they deal with the sense of the world constantly moving on a ship? Um, the ones who can't wouldn't be able to be in the, in the Navy, or they may not be able to travel on a ship for more than a few hours at a time. So you just have to... Um, well, for some people, it's comforting. For some people, it makes the the motion of a ship makes them want to vomit. So, and I it, it's imagine, actually a nightmare to me. It's just just the idea of it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very susceptible to motion sickness. Um, I threw up on a ferry once. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> you get motion sickness on a ferry. It's 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 bad juju. That's mostly a thing that's safe to be on. Actually, the the really wild rides like whitewater rafting, I'm fine. The bigger the boat, <laughs> like no, what's that? It's like those little micro movements. I can't deal with it. I, um, I'm okay in a fishing boat, but you, you get me in a. I had never been so sick in my life as I was on that ferry. <laughs> well, but when you think about so, but the thing is, a, a sentinel, like let's say, let's say you've got, uh, 
let's say John's a Sentinel Marine and he's posted in Afghanistan, they're probably going to be calling, certainly smell, but I would imagine vision is way more important in that environment. Mm -hmm. How far can you see? What can you see? What nuance are you able to detect in those hills up there? More importantly, and once he detects something odd, he might then be listening. But I would think that they would look first and then utilize some of their other senses later. So it's important to think about in the environment your sentinel's in, what strengths are what skill are they going to be using a lot, and how are you and what's hitting them? That? Right, what's hitting them? And also, what the sand, the heat, sand, the, the heat, sun. yeah. A sentinel countermeasures in the desert are going to be different than sentinel countermeasures in, um, in an urban environment. Um, if if let's say using that example of John's posted in, in Afghanistan, I would imagine anybody he's trying to hunt down or whatever that they're going to employ sentinel countermeasures, whether they know sentinels are going to be after them or not. That could be things like mirrors in unexpected places to catch the sun and reflect it into a sentinel's eyes. And they're already probably struggling with overwhelm from the sun anyway, out in the desert. So um it's just something to think about. What does that look like for the Sentinel in the environment that you're putting them in? And what sense is going to be really useful to them? And it's not just always about seeing. Um, urban Sentinels are constantly going to be bombarded with sensory um, input. So if they're going to be effective Urban Sentinels, they have to be able to kind of filter out uh, that certain base... You know, you know how you're in a really busy restaurant and like maybe when you first walk in, it's super overwhelming, the, the chatter, but eventually it just kind of becomes a background hum. We, we learn to adapt to do that kind of thing. So you can imagine that a sentinel would kind of sort of turn down his background environment a lot so that he's not constantly besieged. But because of the way I would imagine their brains are wired to be on the lookout for danger, when something is like discordant in that background noise, like suddenly a baby's crying or somebody screams, you're going to notice because it's not part of that, that quiet hum that they've turned down. That song you hate comes on their radio. Right. And then that's all you hear until it goes off. I gotta get out of this restaurant. <laughs> if I have to hear this freaking song one more time, no one's gonna be happy. <laughs> What's that song, Tom's Diner? Oh, God. I thought I rushed up the other day and that came on and I was like, I hate life right now. <laughs> but, you know, Sometimes we have issues and situations that would be mildly annoying to us, but with someone with um, advanced senses can be just overwhelming. Now, I have a fair, I have a really good sense of smell. Um, and because you eat first with your nose, then your, and then your eyes and then your mouth. Um, there have been times where I've walked into a restaurant and the smell was enough to put me off. Yeah, had has would has put me off my food. I before I ever even got a chance to order, I'm done. I don't even um no, I'm good <laughs> because I have a really sensitive nose, and if something's off in the kitchen, I can smell it. I, I cannot stand to go in a place that serves catfish because I cannot stand the smell of catfish cooking. 
we have this local seafood restaurant um and they have catfish on their menu why i don't know because they say they're a seafood restaurant catfish is not seafood it's river food it's from the river mm-hmm. anyways terrible terrible i know i can't go there but i do like their shrimp so my husband goes and gets it for me and brings it home <laughs> because if i go in that place i'm not going to be able to eat yeah we had a market that used to stock fresh catfish and they put too many of them in the tank and they wouldn't change the water it was ugh, the smell anyway uh somebody had a question um they you mentioned earlier that you consider two people of different sexualities being bonded to be an abusive situation. Would you consider resolving differences and the feelings caused by such a bond to be a valid plot? Um, on that matter, how about a bond between two people of the opposite gender who only have partners external to the bonds? Well, let's do the first, first, first one. Well, Kira had this in, in Sentinels of Atlantis, but I want to, before she, I'll let her talk about how, how she approached that. Um, but first in, for me, this is just my opinion. Um, the the vast majority. This, well, this this is actually there's scientific studies about this. But the vast majority of people, they say, if there weren't societal standards, the vast majority of people are probably at least incidentally bisexual. Okay. Um, so, if you don't have that constraint about you know like homosexuality being a big issue, couple that was getting to know one another might come to find sexual attraction for one another even if it's outside their normal sexual preference this happens in real life someone who Mm -hmm. thinks that they are heterosexual will suddenly get to know someone and find homosexual urges there because that's why scientists have found many of this are at least incidentally bisexual however i don't think i wouldn't do that with an ace character where this is just me personally it because i don't People who are on the sexuality spectrum of, of having sex and of wanting to have sex, having them open up to sexual feelings to somebody of a gender they didn't think they were attracted to, to me is completely different than having a character who is on the I don't want to have sex spectrum changing that. It would feel be, it would feel I would feel like I wasn't being respectful of people who are ace to do that um, because. And because I am not ace, if I were to write an ace character, I would want to approach that with as much respect as I could. Um, and taught changing a character from being ace to being in a sexual relationship to me would feel, I would feel kind of creepy about it personally. So I wouldn't write it and I would not want to, I would want to do that. I can't speak for anybody else on that subject. So People on the sexual sexuality spectrum of the ha- wanting to have sex and of having sex, I feel like sexuality is fluid in that regard. I would not personally put somebody who is ace in a sex in a in a bond with somebody who is having sex. That's Kira mentioned earlier. I wouldn't do it. Um, there was another part of that first question that I wanted to address for like Kira handled that. Um, uh, so yes, I would think the 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 part that I think is abusive. Um, for the for the couple who are on the on the having sex side of the spectrum, whether they be gay, straight, bisexual, pansexual, whatever, or if they're if they're estify and they're flansexual, um, <laughs> for people who are on that end of the of the having sex side of the spectrum, what would be abusive is if they were bonded before they had resolved those issues. To me, okay, I feel like that would put them in a 
that, that would be very uncomfortable for me, like a bond before those sexuality issues had been sorted out. Because it's like, you don't even know if you're going to be able to resolve your issues, but suddenly you're bonded. And I have read stories of forced bonding. Um, and so that kind of thing makes me uncomfortable. So we could deal with the other question later, but I will now punt that to Kira to talk about how she addressed this in Sentinels of Atlantis or anything else for that matter. In Sentinels of Atlantis, when Sam Carter, is Sentinel, goes through the gate with Jack O'Neill to Abydos, she finds her guide, and her guide is married. And she's very respectful of their relationship. Um, and it would be my firm belief that Daniel, um, they didn't actually have an opportunity for this to happen. Because, but if Daniel had had sex with his wife after bonding with Sam, I want to believe he would have done everything possible to keep those emotions and feelings away from his sentinel. Because you have no business projecting your lust for somebody else on another person. That's creepy. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that in the, within minutes of meeting his sentinel, he was separated from his wife and she was eventually killed. That That's canon. They, when Jack O'Neill comes back to Abydos, um, Ra comes shortly after him and takes Share and Daniel never gets her back. Um, the thing is, is if you want to write a platonic pairing, you can. If you don't want it to be abusive, you need to remove any opportunity for there to be any kind of projection, empathetic, you know, empathetic projection onto the other partner for good or bad, whether it's homophobia or um, lust or sex of, of any sort. You don't want your partners to be forced to have these emotions and feelings through their bond. Now, the, the empathy bond is actually fanon. You don't have to use it. It's not canon. Jim and Blair did not have this connection in canon. They had a, what I would say, an intimate friendship. But that's it. Um, I'll add, though, that, that by the time, because of the fountain thing, it was implied that they did wind up with some kind of spiritual connection. But they never developed that. It was just sort of... And Jim rejected it. And Jim rejected it. Yeah. But the potential, um, for, the potential for something was there, which is where you get, I think what, what you got in Fanon is that, that that potential was kind of, you know, it was like, it was like it was handed to us by Canon and said, look, we're not going to do anything with this. Do what you want. And that's cool. And it's fine. You know, the empathy bond is really, it's a lot of fun to play with, but if you're going to play with it, you need to acknowledge that you're creating a situation where these two people have an inroad into each other's brains and into their minds um, to influence emotion, to project emotion, to, um, to, even like just reach out and feel somebody else's emotions and that kind of intimacy and mental mental bonding um has the potential for good and bad in in a forced bonding situation um it's it, it can be extremely abusive i mean if you have a guide who's been forced into a bond with a sentinel um if i was that guide i would do my level fucking best to drive that sentinel insane so he would go dormant so i could break the bond he would beg people to help him get out of a bond with me. Dudes, not even. And so if you think about that and you don't, 
either one of those situations like kind of destroys the sentinel god imperative, right? So to me, the idea of a force bond seems counterintuitive to the entire mythos. But it became a very popular trope. It's not one I would write. But if I was going to write um, a platonic bond um, where one of the partners was ace and the other one was not, they would not have an, an, a bond that allowed for that kind of emotional exchange. I would take the empathy out of it. Definitely. Because otherwise it creates a situation that where you've got somebody experiencing things through, through a bond that they cannot ignore things that they would not want to experience. I would like to say that I do know that some ACE people do have sex. I am aware of it. There is a spectrum when it comes to asexuality. I get it. But I also know as someone who's not ACE that I would not want somebody to project on me their current sexual experience at all. <laughs> and I'm not ACE. <laughs> but if that's not my partner, I don't want to know how they feel fucking. So it transcends sexuality at this point. If these two people aren't engaged in a sexual relationship and they're having sex outside, I mean, do you want to be just like going about your day and making some eggs and the next thing you know, your sentinel is, I don't know, across town getting laid and you can't... <sighs> now you can't do jack shit until he's done. What if you're driving down the road? I mean, just just imagine it. Honestly, imagine I would it. I wouldn't want to experience. I wouldn't want to experience anybody's sexual desire that wasn't my sexual partner. Right. That would exactly. Feel super intrusive. Um, Violating. So, so somebody asked, "Would the resolution?" The person who asked this question asked about, "Would the resolution of this be a valid plot?" I actually think I do think it's definitely a valid thing to work out. Is if somebody's kind of like. You know, okay, I think because in Sentinels of Atlantis, you had um, also had Bates and um, my favorite pairing. What's uh, Graham? Graham Bates considered himself basically straight um, until he met his guide, and then he became Graham sexual. Right. And then yeah, <laughs> they became very Graham sexual. Very Graham sexual. Um, <laughs> he leaned into that. He's like, okay, well, if I'm going to feel like this, I'm gonna just going to go ahead and get, I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and just pull you right into my lap. And he did. I'm going to get some. Um. <laughs> For me, that moment was like, oh, man. Sweet. But you also Fine, had it. them, you also <laughs> had them work out those issues before um, Bates came online. They yeah. were getting close and working out their stuff. And, um, making overtures and Bates was getting, it, it wasn't like super spelled out, but it was obvious Bates was getting, I mean, you could tell he was getting comfortable when he pulled a gram into his lap. Um, um, he was getting comfortable with it. He was getting there. And then he had a, you know, he, I won't, well, somebody who hasn't read SOA asked this question, so I won't tell exactly how Bates came online, but, um, and then Bates came online under less than optimal circumstances, but it had already been sorted out before, the on the onlining. So I mean, I haven't read it myself in a while, but I think they were actually already getting it on before he came online. Graham had hit that already. Yeah. <laughs> so they Graham spent a lot of time in that sentinel's lap before that man became a sentinel. <laughs> right. So it so so Kira addressed that twice in Sentinels of Atlantis with people dealing with 
um, these kinds of things. So I absolutely agree that, that agree. I absolutely think that working that out is a realistic approach to a plot. If you want to explore a character or one side of the pairing that is having their sexuality challenge or their notion of their sexuality challenged by the person they're getting a boner for. Um, I just, as I mentioned, I personally wouldn't do it with a kid. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this exploration personally with a character who was ace. Um, if an ace author wanted to do that exploration, I would be all in, I'd go there and I'd read it, but um, I'm just, I just wouldn't do it. Because but I again, I think the only way you resolve the abuse connection is if there is no. Empathic. Right. Yeah. Empathic connection. It's just, I don't see how you could possibly do it otherwise. Um, Let's see. There was the other side of question. There was other. There was a follow part to that one. Um, what about a bond between two of opposite gender who only have partners external to the bond? Um, I guess that's sort of the idea of the platonic bond. Um, again, in this particular case, I if you wanted to write that kind of thing, I would write like Kira said with the not not having an empathic connection, because if you're going to do like brother and sister who are sent on guide right and they each have a sexual partner do you really want to feel your siblings sexual no interest? absolutely no. not <laughs> no. no right Paul's just like no no <laughs> but this would actually be a really interesting time um for you to read if you're a star trek fan tangled destinies because in tangled destinies when jim and spock meet they have um there um there's a issue at school and when jim uses his abilities as a betazoid um to protect spock there's a empathic tether created that he's unaware of that spock nurtures and keeps because it's something he's never experienced before and he's very enamored with it well later on when they bond um in affinity that empathic connection is replaced with a telepathic bond. And after they have a telepathic bond based on Vulcan physiology that Spock maintains, he he lost that empathetic that empath empathic connection to Jim. And it um because Spock's Vulcan, he relied on that emotional connection to Jim to to navigate his way through their relationship and to to make sure he got it right and without it he was kind of adrift well later on in their relationship in the second season of tangled destinies jim's going to give that back to him when he, when they complete their betazoid bonding so he'll get both so he'll get the other part back so if you wanted to explore a sentinel and god bonding you could do a telepathic bond versus an empathic bond where they um can share um like purposeful impressions to each other because after they bond um jim and blair can kind of have they can have conversations short conversations because they don't want to tax each other or cause you know give each other headaches or whatever um but and jim and spock know when they're close to each other like when spock was like when spock was in a dinner or a tea with his family he knew jim had arrived and was on his way to the to the room um based on their, their telepathic connection 
So you might want to explore a telepathic connection versus an empathic connection. As long as they have the ability to kind of mute that telepathic connection and not bleed all over their partner with um, their, their thoughts or demands. or And they can't influence each other um, telepathically. Does that make sense? And that gives you the ability to, to do the psionic bonding without the... Um, the really ugly implications of having one partner emote all over the other with their erection. <laughs> Does that make sense at all? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I said emote. <laughs> Emoting erections. Yes, that's right. That's what I said. <laughs> Also, if you want to read about a story that has quite a few platonic bonds in it, um, including some sibling bonds, um, variety, you could read um, the Sentinel School unit, Sentinel School verse by Lady Ra. Lady Ra, which is, I think the first story is called I don't know, The Gathering of Sentinels or something like that. Um, that I think that would be a good choice for exploring different types of bonds. I don't recall there being any kind of empathic connection in that no, me neither. verse. Uh, so that's another way. It's just not, it's not the typical kind of um, Sentinel Guide verse that I read anymore. Um, although I actually reread that story a while ago. So, no, I seek out, you know, the deeply emotional, romantic. Right, because you're a romance writer and, and, and you're going to put, you're going to, if you're going to write Sentinels and Guide, you're going to write it in, in, in that lane, you know, in the, in the romance lane, as opposed to the, you know, brother and sister against the world kind of thing um okay the next question uh was it was mentioned in the sentinels of atlantis that keller had to meet specific criteria to be a doctor and her sentinel had to fill out specific paperwork when they bonded do you think that similar criteria and paperwork would be involved in other careers lawyers judges really anything requiring specific privacy laws compared to everyday life um yes I think that they would. I think that's actually pretty common today. There will be instances where, um, like, I have a cousin who works for the bank. She has to be bonded. Not the kind of sentinel bonded, but the actual bonded. She had to fill out paperwork, do a credit test. You know, there's all kinds of things that have to happen in her, you know, just to keep her job. Security checks. A lot of people are subject to security checks. Um, I mean, beyond, if you have a government clearance, you have to pass a, a yearly government clearance thing where they ask you how much you owe to people and you know so i think that's actually just a pretty common thing now for people who are not sentinels and guides but i think when it comes to someone like um jennifer keller who in sentinels of atlantis is a medical doctor that her sentinel is going to pick up on things that he hears he's gonna he, that's his guide he's gonna have an ear on her at every opportunity he possibly can. So he's going to hear things that he normally would not seek out to hear. Things about, you know, things that involve other people's medical privacy. And so there would be legal ramifications, not just tribal ramifications, if he violated that privacy. Not only for himself, but for his guide. And so that paperwork was just an acknowledgement on his part that he recognized what his guide did was a specialty and that there were rules attached to her career that aren't attached to others. Right. 
And I think that that would be where the, where the, perhaps the uniqueness was, although not strictly unique because there are some instances where the spouse of somebody with a, in a certain security clearance has to sign paperwork too. Mm-hmm. In which case the spouse is under, undergoes some sort of security clearance checks as well. So there are, th- this kind of thing is precedent for it already, like in, in the real world, but like the same thing might apply if a guide, it's really more of an issue with a guide who is like a lawyer or a guide who is a doctor, because if their sentinels attuned to them all the time, the sentinel could pick up on things that they should not know otherwise. So they would be bound by the same privacy standards as their guide is. And so that would be, important in those careers as well but a sentinel going into those careers would just sign the same paperwork as anybody else right everybody else would yeah 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 they w- there wouldn't be any special you know special paperwork for a sentinel who was a doctor but really i think what it boils down to in a situation like that is it's just a um we're, we're doing this to make you feel better yeah, and if you yeah, but if you write a sentinel that is pretty uncorruptible, um, it's more it's it's more of a making people feel good that the paperwork signed. It's an acknowledgement of what is going on. Um, but if you do write sentinels prone to corruption, you've got a lot of world building issues you have to deal with there. You know, like people might not even want a guide, um, a bonded guide treating them if 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 your world is with sentinels prone to corruption. So. Um, prone to sentinel. I mean, that's the same thing in like today's society when, when you're asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Sometimes it has, you know, financial consequences if you don't. But I mean, if you break that confidentiality agreement or a non-disclosure agreement, but really they are, it's just paperwork to make you feel better or make somebody else feel better about the situation or circumstances that they're in. And it's just an acknowledgement. Hey, I know I'm not supposed to talk about this. <laughs> I am aware. <laughs> I yeah, I mean it, but it, because you signed it, because you say, "Hey, I knew I wasn't supposed to talk about this." Monetary damages can be, yeah, a problem. Um, so the next question, um, I was trying a thread where the pair could connect through their spirit guides intentionally. Is there a plot hole by doing by going into this? I was working them toward a physical bond but they are starting out platonic. They could try and they connect through their spirit guides intention. Um, I need more information. I don't through. It sounds like you might, through that. Yeah. You might have, you might have worked around part of it with the connection being through the spirit guide, as opposed to them to them. Like, you know, Jim to Blair is not the same thing as Jim going to his spirit guide who goes to Blair's spirit guide who connects to Blair. I mean, you, it seems like you put like a, a, a layer of abstraction there, but if you could uh, elucidate a bit, that would be helpful. <laughs> Excellent word choice, Jillian. <laughs> <sighs> I, um, there is a scene in Sentinels of Atlantis where John has gone off world and the Janai used a, um, the Janai knew that Ronan was a guardian. They didn't know the others were. So when they went to that planet to seek revenge on them, 
they used a device they knew that would make it very difficult for Ronin. It made it very difficult for all the Sentinels there, and it was citrus-based. And so when he gets back to Atlantis, he cannot be in the same room with McKay. And so they isolate John in the infirmary. And Rodney sends his spirit animal to comfort his sentinel. He also sends the orange fleece. Because <laughs> I was like, I have to use it. <laughs> John never saw him in it, but I still have to use it. I have to use the orange fleece. Add an orange fleece, you might as well use the orange fleece. <laughs> <laughs> and in um, the story I wrote, couple years ago from blue to green or from green to blue whichever one john and rodney again um john came online and he came online in afghanistan and rodney was on earth and he told blair sandberg that during the course of his um coming online um that he saw it's from blue to green he saw a wolf that there was a spirit animal um and it was rodney's spirit animal and blair believed him but no one else did um but later on um after john comes to the city um the wolf comes to visit john and he recognizes that wolf it's the same wolf that came online when he was when he was in combat i feel like that's actually in the story i know it was in my zero draft okay okay <laughs> Because sometimes you draft something and you outline something and it doesn't actually end up in the story because it doesn't seem as important when you're actually doing the writing. Um, but that's another instance where Rodney's... Actually, Rodney's spirit animal acted without his input. Because it's actually my headcanon that because Rodney had shut himself so far off from his gifts to survive without a sentinel, that that his spirit animal had basically been hanging out with John Shepard all that time, and John couldn't see him until he came online. Rodney was being terrible to his own spirit animal. Well, Rodney was grieving something he thought he couldn't have. Okay. Um, the person says, John and Rodney are my pair, but John tries not to get in the way of Rodney's love life. He sends the spirit guide to check on Rodney to try not to spy. He keeps getting the message that Rodney is busy literal communication between the spirit animals that sounds almost like two demons having a conversation like from you know from from his dark materials i mean i think you've i think regardless of whether I, either of us completely understand what you you how you've how you've handled the the spirit guides there um it does sound like you've gotten around the issue of the bond being abusive by the fact that they they literally have to go through their spirit animals to get information about the other person, so there's not a direct connection. So I think you've gotten around the the issue. So he's not using his senses to keep track of Rodney. He's using his spirit animal to just visit Rodney. I do question how long you can maintain that before John starts to have issues with his senses. How does that work? Something to think about. I mean, you don't have to answer it right now. Just, you know, think about how John is grounding himself. Um, what the Sentinel needs from a guide in your universe. And 
if John is getting those needs met and vice versa, what is the guide need from a Sentinel and are those needs being met in McKay? Um, as long as you answer those questions, I, I think you're good. Right. Did you run away, Jillian? Oh, you can't hear me? No, I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you're writing your, when you're, when you're writing your stuff about your Sentinel, there's a lot of different uh, things you need to consider. You need to consider what does it mean for a Sentinel to be, if it, let's say you're going to rate them on a scale. What does it mean to be a level one Sentinel versus a level six Sentinel? Um, and by the way, for the, for the purposes of, of like, when we talk about a Sentinel, it is somebody with five enhanced senses. That's the canon definition of a Sentinel. So I know some people do some other stuff where they'll have like a three cent Sentinel or a four cent Sentinel. I am never talking about that ever. No, me neither. So um, at you, least five. Right. So one cent Sentinel doesn't make any sense to me. If it's not, it, it's all five cents senses enhanced um, for me. And the question is, what does level one mean? What is level two? What does it mean that, that they're on that scale and how does it lend itself to different things? You know, um, what, what is, what is better? Cause I would actually imagine that, you know, there are some things that it's better to be a level two Sentinel for than it is to be a level six Sentinel. It's probably, right. some, you know, it just all depends upon, like, it could be for most cops, you want them to be around a two or a three, someone with who can control their sense as well, they can stretch them, but they're not going to be at a massive disadvantage constantly fighting or the stimulus, you know, maybe a level six sentinel is rare and it's somebody who does like an Ian Edgerton who does manhunts in the woods and stuff. I mean, you just need to think about the application. I'm on board that. <laughs> I'm on board that train. <laughs> When do we leave the station, Jilly? Where are we going? <laughs> you think about what is the application for your sentinel? Do you have children's sentinels? If you do, what is that like? I rarely, I like to me, children's sentinels are rare, rare. They occur in my worlds, but they are rare. And it is not a, ever a good thing. A child only comes online as a sentinel when something is very wrong in their environment. Very, very wrong. And so it is something the tribe is very protective about. Same thing with guides. I, I don't ever write it that children are supposed to come online. Ever. That's just the way I write it. Uh, I feel like that that's a function. That's, that's something I wouldn't want to heap that adult, that, that kind of responsibility on children as, as a regular part of the world. I do think things bad happen, however, to kids and that it would be, but I, I always write it to be an aberration, but you have to decide what it is like. Do, do they come online routinely around six or seven and they grow up in little Sentinel guide conclaves or whatever. And what does that look like? And how do you keep that from feeling kind of gross that these kids are being taken away from their parents? And um, really just need to, to think about what, what all of these like little nuanced things mean for a sentinel. Um, what are sentinels, you know, un, an unbonded sentinel, what is their interaction like with a bonded guide? What is their interaction, what is acceptable interaction like with an unbonded guide? I mean, it's just all this like little nuanced things that just to think through when it comes to um, sentinels. Um, okay, yes, I did have. I did have a bunch of child, child sentinels in Send for the Man, but that was unusual circumstance. And I didn't spell it out in the story, but Alex was a, Alex is the highest level shaman on earth. He would have been anyway, right? When it was time for him to come online. 
but someone took his twin right off the street or attempted to. And Alex came online and called every sentinel in the area to his defense to protect his brother. That triggered his brothers all coming online. Now they were all children. Yes, they were all children. But that doesn't mean children routinely come online in my world. But that was a very different set of circumstances in Send for the Man. Um, and that is why Patrick and Emma moved to Peru is because they knew that, you know, all of their kids coming online at that moment, that if anybody got word of it, that they would forever be under scrutiny. So they, you know, packed up and left and went and lived with the Chopek until their kids were okay enough to come home. Yeah, Blair found them, though. Um, Blair came to them. Blair was a teenager, I think, if I remember correctly. I should remember correctly. It's my story, but you never know. I forget my own stuff all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I go to fix The other my... day, I thought, I want to read this story, and I was looking for it and looking for it. It was my own shit. Yeah, dude, I, I, went to a fic, I went to a fix finder group once to try to find what story it was mine. <laughs> you didn't actually post, did you? I actually, the thing is, I was posting, I was writing the post and I was talking to somebody about that. I said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm writing a post for Fic Finder Group. And they said, what are you trying to find? And I said, da, 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 da. And they said, isn't that yours? And I was like, ugh, <laughs> ugh. Shut up. At least they saved you. <laughs> yeah, the, sh the epic embarrassment of asking a thick finder group to find my own story for me. On the other side of it, I've seen things being asked for in a fanfic group, and I think to myself, that sounds familiar. Yours? Why have I read that before? It was mine. Or worse, I've seen something, and I'm thinking, why the hell would anybody want to read that? It's Based yours? on what I've been giving and from you know what what's been given in the request, right? You scroll down, it's mine. I was like, that shit, that's not help. God damn it. <laughs> Do you people really see it that way? <laughs> is that really what you got out of that? Oh, the most annoying ones though is just where they tell you like one sex scene they really enjoyed, and that's all they have. That's all they remember is this one specific sex scene in your work, and you're like, really? Really? All of that. And you remember Okay, fine. 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 Pervert. <laughs> it's like that little girl in, in uh the Meg when they told her to go and get a soda or something. She goes, Fine. 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 <laughs> fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> I think there were at least six fines. This is annoying. Oh, he was nine. Okay, so Blair was nine when Alex pulled him online. Thank you, Ellie. See, Ellie, Ellie went and checked. <laughs> I had children come online in the awakening because of trauma. Um, there are children online just in Sentinels of Atlantis. For um, I didn't, I, I wasn't going to, but then I wanted to kind of mirror John on Earth, and that turned out to be David's son. Um, but I didn't want him to be some kind of really rare circumstance because it would give it, would, it there would be too much scrutiny on him i mean you know he's you know his grandfather is really wealthy um his his uncle is you know an alpha sentinel um 
I, I, I didn't want to add to Andy's burden too much. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to manage this by having just some children come online. Just like, it's just, it's one of those things that happens. Um, but I didn't want to go into like, there could be some kind of trauma situation or him being really rare. And what would the, really the ripples of that? Would, would people try to take him? Um, would David be fighting for custody all the time? You know, all these situations, like, you know, so he so he doesn't need to be rare. So if you're gonna have a child sentinel or guide, you either need to, like Julie said, make it be a rare circumstance where something really traumatic happens, um, and everybody's really protective of them, or you just make it a commonplace thing. Because otherwise, you can just it could get to be madness. Right. If there's no explaining why your kid is online, and kids don't normally come online, why is he online? So the kid I had, I had a kid come online in Journey Home. It's the first contact Tony has with somebody through the spirit plane. It's Sentinel calling on him in distress. Um, I think his name is Sean. Um, anyway, Sean. That was a great scene, by the way. Thank you. Sean, um, Sean came online slowly, but it was because of his, the trigger for him coming online was his abduction from his mother. Um, he had been, his father was non-custodial parent and had disappeared with him. And ultimately, the um, separation from his mother pushed him online. And when he started seeing and hearing things that were outside of the normal sensory perspective, that's when his father locked him in a closet um, and told him, basically, you're not coming out until you start acting normal. Sean started wishing really hard for a guide to come and save him because that's what he believed guides were about. They were going to come and save him. And that's how he connected to tony and he pulled tony for the first time onto the spirit plane and tony was able to get him help um and yes well, he wasn't wrong yeah yeah he got him help <laughs> and yes his his uh his um his spirit guide was a tasmanian devil and in that story and in most of my stories i have the age of the spirit the spirit animal appears at the approximate same age as the person who um, is online. So it's unusual to see a young spirit animal in that story because in, in, in most of my universes, except for one, because most children don't come online. So a young spirit animal, there are other ways you, I've seen other methods of, of spirit animal age, but it, to me, it's a reflection of, are they a baby? Are they an adolescent? Are they a toddler? So the baby Tasmanian devil was a reflection of Sean's age. Um, in um, The Awakening, Elizabeth has a baby polar bear, and it is a reflection of her emotional innocence. The only the only one of my stories that I did anything different with um, in terms of the spirit guide age, we're, and we're going to do a whole podcast on spirit guides, um, was uh, Vicious, which there's a, I did a whole thing about, you know, first guides appearing as... as um, as basically infants when they first or when they first appear. Man, Lady Holder's just a link machine this evening. Yes. <laughs> so, I I do. I think because I think a a, a child sentinel guide can be a powerful plot device because they provide it, um, incredible motivation, and it, it actually they are implicit conflict, right? They imply conflict to me. Um, that there's conflict in the world or something has happened and they provide motivation for 
your character. So they can be a very powerful plot device. But it, it is, it, to me, I would have it be uncommon in the world. Because I wouldn't want to put that on children on a regular basis as a routine part of life. Um, I've read stories where, like, if you don't come online by the time you're 20, you're not going to come online. That Most people come online between, like, 14 and 20. That always, I have to say, that gives me head, I head tilt over it a little bit. It never quite it gets explained why that's a good idea. I actually do get the idea that children's brains are more flexible. And to a degree, there has to be some amount of brain rewiring to become a sentinel or a guide, right? So I get the idea that younger is probably better from that perspective, which is why I usually do under 35 or under 30, is to give that kind of that little bit more flexibility of the brain kind of thing. But I actually think a bunch of people who are in the middle of puberty, as that being the standard age for people coming online, is rife with potential problems. So many problems. But if I was going to give it a date range, it's like a, if I was going to give it my world a concrete date range, which I, I don't do, but if I was going to, I'd probably pick 17 to 25. Because, you know, your brain's still developing and sh things are changing, but you're but you're starting to solidify as a person. Um, you're going through a lot of changes. There's, you know, the rites of passage, becoming an adult. So that seems like that would be the kind of change um, that you would stop being responsible, like that you would become responsible for yourself and therefore have the potential to be responsible for the tribe at 18, 19. You know, it, depending on the circumstances, like if you have, I mean, it seems perfectly reasonable if it's a very isolated, like literal tribe that the sentinel uh, of the village dies and the next one is 17 or 18 years old. They come online. That makes perfect sense. It's their job. It's their duty to the tribe. Right. Right. Um, and, you don't, you know, our brains don't really get, you know, completely mature to about what, 25, 26? Um, for, 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 for. Males, yes. <laughs> I it's it's about it's between it actually is between like twenty two and twenty three, I think ish. That's somewhere between twenty two and twenty five for, but it happens with females younger, around eighteen to twenty. Um, so that seems like a good age, but I wouldn't want to put an age on it as a rule. I I only do. I typically mention the upper limit, and the reason is because I do think that because of the adaptation involved i think the older you are the more traumatic it is to adjust to that kind of thing so i actually think it's kind of to me kind of like it kind of makes sense that generally it's going to happen before a certain age or it starts to become less likely it's going to happen to you um and the reason why i usually pick 30 as my upper limit is because if you do say that your character is going to if you do kind of give it a range where it usually happens, the further outside the range your character is, and I usually write a character who's over 30, the more potentially traumatic that is going to be for them, whether it's younger or older. So we talk about that it seems obvious if you're giving like it's an early adult, not, not early, yeah, early adults and young adults. If it's young adults are kind of where it typically happens for most people, for most people, it's implicit that it's going to be probably traumatic if you're a lot younger than that. Well, it's also to me implicit it's going to be traumatic if you're a lot older than that. So somebody who's 50, suddenly you're 55 or 60, suddenly becoming a sentinel. Some people might adjust to that okay, but a lot of people aren't going to. You spent six decades of your life and all of a sudden you're a sentinel. What is going on? And the thing is, here's the thing. What is going wrong in the world that that is necessary? That said, you do kind of have to address the fallout of that. 
So when I have Tony coming online quite a bit past the normal age, he's you have to address what it's like for him or for them or whoever that that it's maybe a little bit harder to adapt. You know, just work it in, right? They're a little bit older than normal. What is it? Did it take them a little bit longer to I don't mean that they don't master the skills quickly, but maybe it's just more overwhelming for a while. Maybe they have a hurdle before they really start, you know, learning the skills. But just put something in there about why, you know, what's different about it. Oh, by the way, when we talk about brains maturing, the last part of the brain to mature is the part of the brain that is responsible for decision making. <laughs> Isn't that the damnedest thing? Right. So, you know. Some in the chat room says, as somebody who had to suddenly change skill set at 40, I can absolutely attest to that. It's not the easiest. It was it certainly, I can tell you, I felt like it was a lot easier for me to adapt to change. Some, especially certain kinds of changes when I was younger than it is now. Now I'm like, I've, and sometimes I can't tell if it's just because it's just gotten harder. Or if it's just because I'm crotchety and I hate people. <laughs> I mean, you know, fair, but you know, how many of y'all were around when I had my epic meltdown because my grocery store changed their, their layout? But you'd have had that that meltdown at 25, too. I would have, yes. <laughs> I would have, yes. How dare they? <laughs> the milk's not in the same place. <laughs> it was traumatic. I went in to get my stuff and no one was nowhere. It was... They handed me a map at the door. I said, I don't need a map. I've been coming here for... Man, we changed the layout. You what? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I I got all the I got I got to the deli counter right, and I was done. I was like, I'm sorry, I don't. I'm gonna have to cancel that. I can't take anymore. And I just put all my stuff back and left. <laughs> I mean, I'm just not here for it, right? I'm just like, no. <laughs> it's just a. It's just. Oh my god. I am. Um, there was that lady who who. Um, posted a video about her Kroger rearranging or whatever, and that she kept going to this. She I couldn't stop herself from pacing the sanitary napkin aisle trying to find juice. <laughs> She's like, I know there's no juice there, but this is where there's supposed to be juice. <laughs> it's just it doesn't. Why? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And then their app wasn't updated, so I would ask the app where shit was, and the app would be like, I don't know app, that's where it used to be. <laughs> Fix your damn app. Um, oh, it was terrible. So let's talk about a very common trope. To me, a very problematic common trope. Let's talk about the Fragile Sentinel. Um, it is canon. The sentinel, the, the whole thing about sentinel sensitivities and all that kind of stuff, that's canon. Jim could not have had a Benadryl to save his life. It seems pretty innocuous to people. Benadryl is supposed to be super safe. They don't give Jim a little bit of cold medicine. He is fucked up. Jim also had a lot of skin sensitivities, right? So a sentinel having to have kind of a carefully managed environment really isn't any different than somebody who's got really bad allergies. You know, you just you just can't in their day to day. Judge me, dark. It's not the safest thing for me, no. But I'm saying for most people. Um, but most people for the day to day, your sentinel wants to be able to relax, right? They want to be able to be come home and be safe. 
which means they need to be able to dial their census off, which means not off. They need to be able to dial off of high alert, which means they don't want scent smells that are annoying their senses. They probably don't want harsh lighting. Um, there's you probably aren't going to have a lot of I would think like a lot of just like pure hardwood floors without rugs over them because the echo the sound issue would probably get to be an annoyance so they're probably going to want to like anybody else make their home environment as comfortable as they possibly can make it for themselves that said if sentinels were as fragile and delicate as I see fan fiction treat them at times they wouldn't be able to function they just wouldn't be able to it does no good to be a tribal protector if, you know, somebody wearing too much perfume can put you in the hospital. If that is probably actually pretty close to what happened a time or two in canon. But I mean, I, I actually find the fragile sentinel trope to be, um, well, number one, you're right, it is problematic. But number two, it's just not any fun. Who wants to manage that for 50k? I don't. Nope. And then what happens? That's a whole lot of note from me, dog. You know what it is? It's those people. It's those people who like to write hurt comfort. They like to write a hundred k of of Tony Dinozo getting his ass whooped, and then ten k of 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 comfort afterwards. <laughs> it's gonna get. You think? No, that's not what actually. Happened. I'm not dogging you guys. If if you, if you like hurt comfort, that's fine. I just don't want to read it, and I'm not gonna write it. That's not what happens, though. We don't get. 20k of him getting his ass whooped and 10k of comfort. That's not what happened. We get 40k of him getting his ass whooped beyond all human ability to bear, and then 500k of five, 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 500 words. Of, well, actually, I said 100k of getting his ass whooped, but okay. And then 500 <laughs> words of I'm glad you're okay. I mean, sometimes it's like if that actually happened to a real life human being, they would be crippled for life. Right, and there and there's quite there's actually quite a bit of of this in NCIS of Tony just being physically put womp. through the ringer. The wump is real, and you can't call that. Actually, I don't think you can call it hurt comfort. It is just wump fig, because five hundred words of comfort is not hurt comfort. It's hurt. It's a whole lot of hurt, and then unexpectedly impossible comfort. <laughs> It's like, no, dog, half his skin's gone right now from the burning from chapter six. You're not getting laid for two years if all the skin grafts heal properly. Right. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's just like. <sighs> but for me, for me, I like hurt comfort in the way that I like amnesia, which is like it's an element of the overall story as opposed to the story. And there is a difference between a trope being an element, like your character sustains a significant head injury and they have amnesia for two chapters versus them having amnesia for the whole story and the whole story hinges on them having amnesia. That is two, one's an amnesia fic and one is a some other kind of story where the character had amnesia for 6,000 words. So hurt comfort, I can deal with in the same way. Like somebody can get hurt, there can be some comfort. It can be an element of an of a bigger story. But when the entire story is hurt comfort, no, it's just not my thing. I mean, I know some people live for it. They're here all day for that. There's plenty actually. And if you're not an NCIS reader, come to NCIS. We have the torture porn. All the torture porn. Inception has the rimming. 
And the sound, has and the incense. Inception also has the sounding. I mean, good on them. And 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 the figging. Um, at least they used to. Um, and NCIS has the torture porn. The figging may sound like the torture porn, but it really isn't. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for because you know something you know something i will tell you for this. some people the incest is a feature a feature yeah but i will tell you this you know something a lot of things i actually appreciate about the supernatural fandom is that the minute the, this is the best if there were a bunch of people just you could just feel them like sitting in the wings waiting for a viable pairing and the minute it landed they were all over that like nobody's business they're like they, they it was like oh my god he's got wings too right it's like <laughs> could this be any better i mean for a while it was the biggest ship and it happened so fast on ao3 right it's like it went from zero to f biggest ship in the fandom and then one of the biggest ships on ao3 just like that because there were all of these fan fiction writers sitting there going please give us a viable pairing oh thank god there's an angel and he's cute he's got a nice voice and we could do that. He's got a trench coat, coat and wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the, the trench coat is definitely a feature for them. D don't get mixed up. <laughs> right? Well, so I actually appreciate the tenacity of the supernatural fandom. I'm not forgiving them for ABO anytime soon. Um, did, did ABO start there? Yeah. We've already had this conversation before, haven't we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what you should apologize for, Margaret. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Mostly. So you know, I pre I appreciate. I don't, I don't I know how trench coat equals thigh holster. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> See, in, in supernatural, the trench coat is is the thigh holster. It's the thigh holster of that fandom because they don't have actual thigh holsters, though they should. I think that they could do well with a thigh holster too. I think people, some people, underestimate the power of a dick frame. Right. <laughs> That's the double thigh holster, by Crotch the way. frame. Because, you know, that chick from Supernatural, uh, not Supernatural, that, that chick from uh, Firefly, Supernatural was on my brain, you guys, Firefly, um, Lawrence Fishburne's wife, she wore a thigh holster. It was hot. His ex-wife. Gina Torres, yes. Gorgeous woman. Zoe Washburn on the show. She wore a thigh holster sometimes, didn't she? Working it. So... Supernatural fandom, I think that they had a and and I love that they had this enormous, this huge, this huge um slash this huge slash parry that just kind of took over fandom for a while. Not the brother one. That's not the one I'm talking about, but <laughs> um the angel landed and everything was great again. Right. So I appreciate I appreciate the tenacity of that that fan. They didn't give up. They just they didn't give up. I also I also really appreciate how the show creators sort of play with the audience. You know, they appreciate their fans. They they do whole episodes about the fandom. There's a fandom within. Do you know about this? There's a fandom within the show. Uh, for Dean and yeah. Sam. Dean and Sam have a fandom. Yeah, that that yeah. ships them. Yeah. yeah, I've I've heard all about it. It's a. Uh, they, they know we're brothers, right? <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> Well, I really think I really think that it's just kind of it's very cute the way that they and then of course I like the microwave fairy, so you know. Don't judge me. Oh. 
I, I okay, being queer baited for being queer baited for a season sucks, but certainly being queer baited for eleven seasons is terrible. But isn't there a point when you have to recognize that um most of these shows are never gonna take that step? So when does it stop being queer baiting and become just wishful thinking on your part? I mean, did anybody actually really, really in their heart of hearts believe that Derek and Styles were going to get together? I think yes, but it was because they played up the pairing so much. I mean, they they put they had them do publicity tours together. MTV, yeah. MTV, MTV really tried to get people on board that ship train. And when people finally said, "Okay, when are you going to put out?" they backed off. I didn't haven't seen many many shows do that where they actually. Yeah, I would say that probably was queer baiting. But on Supernatural, doesn't like Dean fuck everything that was still for it? Or every woman that was still for it? <laughs> so, see, that's hot. Gina in a thigh holster. So I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when it stops, you know, where the line between wishful thinking and queer baiting is for, for Supernatural because um, they didn't take the route that Teen Wolf did. Although I never thought in a million years that it would it would happen for Teen Wolf. I didn't watch the show, but just seeing it from the outside, even with the campaign and you know the the voting with on MTV and the ship thing, you know, you know, pick your favorite pairing and MTV puts it up there for you to pick it. I never thought in a million years they'd actually do it. But when it comes to supernatural, I mean well, but the thing is, I agree with you um, that the networks become an issue, except that in the case of Teen Wolf, it was the network doing this. Right. So the network wasn't going to drop. I mean, they may have just... MTV it. only had to answer to MTV. Right. So. Um, okay. So let's go back to the Sentinels. So I don't think we have any pending questions. Uh, if anybody has any more questions. So what we've covered... Okay, let's talk about spirit guides for Sentinels. We're going to do a whole podcast on spirit guides, but you can't ignore the whole Sentinel spirit guide thing. Um, I think it's important to figure out what kind of spirit guide methodology you're going to use. Um, I always have, just, just the way I work it, I always have um, Apex Predators, Sentinels are Apex Predators. There are a and lot be of consistent with it? Yeah. Aw. What a pretty cat. I think it's important to be really consistent when it comes to that, to have the apex predators like Jilly does um, or to, um, because then you like, okay, you have like three or four sentinels with apex predators. And then all of a sudden you've got one that has some ridiculous animal that I don't want to actually name in case one of you did it. Um, <laughs> sugar glider. I have never read a sugar glider for a sentinel. A sugar period. glider. Just for kick, just for shits and giggles. How do you explain that? Where is the consistency there? I mean, a sugar glider is cute as hell, but what in the world does it have to do with? And honestly, if you picked a sugar glider for your sentinel spirit animal, I'm sorry, I haven't read your fic. I would, I always try to use examples that of stuff I actually haven't read, but um, it just doesn't it doesn't gel. I, not arguing with you, it would make a great demon, but but you have to figure out what a spirit guide means to you, and you and and what it means for your world building are they a reflection of your sentinel or are they um a sapient sentient presence from the psionic plane also think about you know how are they going to manifest if you're going to do water-based animals do they just float around in the air if they do manifest i mean do you have a killer whale just kind of hanging out seems kind of hmm 
and we'll discuss this more later, but it, you, have to, you want to be careful about giving your spirit animals, um, if you're going to have a lot of sitting on gods in the same place, to give your sit, your your spirit animals a lot of um, screen time, because you are quadrupling your cast. And really think about it before you have them talk. Right. It, it, which is okay. It's just if you if you're if you're planning a twenty five k fic before if you got twenty five k and that's your 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 word budget before you plot in spirit guides that talk, you're gonna need thirty k once you have spirit guides that talk because the spirit guides are very integral to if you're gonna if you're gonna have them talk. Don't they have, have to talk. Don't have them talk and then not have them say anything useful or have them not saying anything at all. It's just it becomes a feature. It's it's a, it's just enough off the norm for Sentinel Guide stories that if you're going to put that in there, it feels like you need to do something with it. So you know, just to have them be there for just idle conversation when your Sentinel Guide is home alone, it's not doing anything with it. It starts to feel like what was this there for? Then you know, then you have this little novelty thing in your fic that serves no purpose, that's eating up your word count. And in general, be careful in Sentinel Guide stories about novelty things that don't serve a purpose. Um, because readers will latch onto it, right? And it's and this is not about reader expectation. This is about good craft. You don't want to when you tell a story have people latching onto things, um, mentally and waiting for it to come. Because what happens is they go, okay, this thing has been introduced, and this kind of circulating in the back of their brain. If you never do anything with it, it's jarring. And that, that that speaks to a readability issue. Yes, Queenie. Sometimes a single word of dialogue will haunt you, haunt you for a fucking decade. <laughs> but no, the, you're not. The thing is, most of them do. People, readers notice. They notice these things, right? Um, if you bring in a really different kind of Sentinel Guide concept um, into your story, but you don't do any it doesn't have it doesn't serve a function in your story um then readers are gonna go but what was the point of that so let's say just let's just say that for example um that you write a, a typical kind of meet greet bond kind of story um but then you're you're you put in that your guide has the ability to um project their consciousness to people on another planet and this is a story that people don't, they don't know anything about life on other planets. This is your typical, maybe, um, criminal mind story, right? And all of a sudden, he, you find out that Reed has been consciously projecting his mind to people on other planets and talking to children on other planets, okay? And then you don't do anything with that. He just mentions it. I have a, I have a friend in, in, in the Andromeda galaxy. Do you? It, it. It feels weird. And I know that's an extreme example and I've never read anything like that, but I've seen things on that level of jarring where it's kind of like, what function did that serve? What was the purpose of Reed having this ability and showing these conversations with this person in another galaxy? What function did that serve in the story? And if it's none, it just feels like this, as much as I hate this word, it feels like a turd that's sitting in the swimming pool that nobody dealt with. It's like, <laughs> well the story's over but the turd is still there it's like it didn't do anything <laughs> I can't 
so says you, Ellie. <laughs> oh gosh. Floating <laughs> <Floating birds. laughs> <of> truth. <laughs> so it's just think about it. Make your choices deliberately. Don't put in more world building than you need. And with Sentinel Guy, you need plenty of world building. So putting in a bunch of extraneous stuff that doesn't help you. Um, so like maybe a more practical example, and I get I haven't read this, but um, um, let's say you're writing a Hobbit Sentinel fusion, okay, and you work up some really complicated world building, and this you know it could be good. There's some kind of connection between the Rings of Power, and um, like when they were at their peak of use or something, that Sentinel guides um, started diminishing. That there was either a direct direct correlation in some fashion. Let's say you put this out there, right? And it comes up, right? It's mentioned in the story. This whole world building piece about the connection between Sauron and the Rings and somehow having an effect on Sentinels and Guides. And then you never do anything with it. The reader's going to be scratching their head by the end going, what was that whole... It just feels like this random tangent that went nowhere. And there's a difference between foreshadowing for a future story and it's, and, and just... Because the thing is, foreshadowing is not that blatant. <laughs> you might lay down some elements of that, and they're kind of finding out some stuff. But to just dump it all out there and it go nowhere, it just feels like, what was that about? I mean, did the did the author forget what story they were writing for a while, and then they never bothered to edit this and take that out? I mean, think about it. Sometimes you put an element in your story, or it's like in your draft, or your or your. Uh, once I I put something in my rough draft and I deleted part of it, but left the other part in. So that part made no no sense. And so I put my what I normally do with my rough drafts is I'll put them aside, right? A couple of weeks later, I go back to this rough this this rough draft and I'm reading it and I come across the part I hadn't deleted just out of the blue. Here, here's this thing. And I'm like, how the fuck did I get there? What did I do? What what have I done? It doesn't make it oh oh wait. And I go back to my to my outline and I realize I have deleted one part of the event, but not the consequences. So here are my characters being um put through the ringer for something that did not happen. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the lines of, you know, one, like in chapter one, John goes to bed. He wakes up the next day in the infirmary getting his leg set. Like, literally, it was like that. Like, what happened? Because I, I took out that whole scene where he, where he broke his leg. <laughs> John had no idea. But no, I'm just, that isn't exactly what happened. But that's what I'm talking about is that I had left out this, this. And sometimes I'll be reading something that somebody else has written. And I think to myself, did they do that? And why didn't they notice? Because they've got this random thing in the middle of their narrative that doesn't fit anywhere. Doesn't make any sense. Okay, but what happened to that kid that Reed was talking to in the other galaxy? <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. We want to know. This is an important point. It was obviously important. You kept bringing it up. <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. Also, doing going your own way and doing something kind of different is cool and all this kind of thing. But you just, it, you're going to have a hard time getting readers to shake off 
their expectations of the common tropes. So, and I don't mean this to say you can't go outside the box, you know, but just if there's a really common trope or really common interpretation of something and you are going outside of that and you don't really give a lot of explanation to it or whatever, it could wind up just being confusing. So for instance, um, there's, I would say the vast majority of Sentinel Guide stories, there is either like some sort of, some sort of predator or something like that, or spirit guide, or there is a, um, or the, the characteristics of the animal reflect the characteristics of the Sentinel Guide, right? So a true spirit animal totem, as opposed to a reflection of like the warrior within or whatever. And both of those, I can usually tell which way an author is going pretty quickly once I start seeing their spirit guides, and I kind of naturally know how to interpret it. That's what tropes do, right? Is they actually are a framework that we can kind of commonly understand things that explain them over and over again, right? So if you go way outside that, and let's say you start giving your sentinels and guides for whatever reason, like rodents, and um, they're all rodents for some reason, or um, carrion feeders, and that's all of it, right? Everybody's either, you've either got like, you know, like hyenas and vultures and stuff, or you've got like, you know, rats and mice and things. People are going to infer stuff about your, 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 your sentinel based on this common framework of past tropes. And they're like, well, what's with this sentinel that he's spirit animals or rat? Not that there's anything wrong with a rat. I'm just saying that there are it's like a well actually <laughs> i mean they are dig i have a real problem with a rat but they some... pee on everything some people really like rats i get it i'm not trying to bash a rat you know except i don't particularly want to be i mean i did kill a rat by screaming at it once but um <laughs> at least you didn't vacuum pack it no i would never that was a spider no uh, yeah Actually, it was a mouse, but whatever. Um, and I did. I talked to the. I talked to a vet later about what had happened with this mouse, and she said either you caused it to have a stroke, or um, it traumatized the, its ear, and it. That's why it ran in circles until it died. It was very kind of sad. I a, she screamed at it. I have a very piercing scream. <laughs> that's why I say, but it's, it it becomes it's become a family joke that I. I screamed this mouse to death. It startled me and I screamed. And the next thing I knew, I, I went and hid in the bathroom because, you know, this little teeny tiny mouse was worth hiding from. And then I hear my family react. I'm like, well, that mouse is pretty freaking stupid to just hang out. But it was just running in circles in the hallway. And it never stopped running in circles. Not very bad by the end of the whole thing, but still. Anyway, I, I get it. Mice and rats not intrinsically bad, but we do have a perception about them. We have a perception about rodents. We have a perception about carrion feeders, right? Scavengers. Can you imagine? What, and based upon the way we typically see spirit animals handled, if you wrote your sentinel whose spirit animal was a catfish, your reader's going to maybe infer some things about your spirit animal. I'm not saying don't go the all rodents all the time for spirit animals if that's what you want to do, but put some thought into why and what it means and what it's symbolic of and actually kind of try to explain it because otherwise people are going to be like, what is wrong with the sentinels and guides in this universe that they're all rodents? 
the representations of them are rodents. I will run faster from a rat than I would practically anything else. <laughs> They're fast. <laughs> oh, I would never vacuum pack a rat. I vacuum packed a spider. It was a spider. I. It had it coming. It did. It scared the <laughs> crap out of me. And what happened was it. it dropped... I actually read a really interesting fic once. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead and tell them because people on the podcast will want to know. I'm sorry. I was writing actually. I was at my desk and this spider dropped down in front of me, like right in front of my nose. It was huge. And I like flailed back, fell out of my chair. And so. As one does. As one does. Um, can I can deal with spiders if, I, if I'm from a distance? I'm like, okay, there's a spider. But when it's just suddenly there, it scares the crap out of me. So I go and I get the hand back, as you do, and I vacuumed up the spider. <laughs> but this was a very big, very pissed off spider. And apparently, sucking it up in a hand back doesn't do much to it. So it's just running around in the hand back. And I was like, well, what do I do now? It kept trying to crawl out. I was having none of that. So I just turned that hand back on to that battery died. It was in super pissed off and running around in this hand back. And I was like, Jesus Christ. So I got the pallet wrap out and I pallet wrapped the hand back. And then just to be sure, I put it on the porch. <laughs> so her sister comes home. She'd been on a trip, right? She'd been on a trip. She comes home for a few days later and she's like, why is there why is this hand back on the porch and why is it in pallet wrap? I there's a spider in it. <laughs> At least she just didn't give the spider the house and move out while her sister was out of town. Where are you? Well, there was a spider. I'm at the holiday and there was a spider in my room. So I gave it the room. I'm at the holiday inn. <laughs> oh, what I was gonna say about um when you do something really unique or interesting with spirit animals, you know, the ramifications of that's for character is I read a, not necessarily completely connected, but I read a, I don't read a lot of them, but his dark materials story where John's, um, uh, demon was a bat and people thought that that meant he was, was it a bat? The bat? It was a bat. And then there was one where he, um, his was, um, a crow. And one of them, I think it might have been the crow one, people thought he was bad luck because his demon was a crow. And he was on a planet where this woman took put her hands on his demon and tried to take it away from him, like separated them. And that was really traumatic. But then the one with the bat, he sends the bat he he's in he's in very bad shape. He's he's been kidnapped or something, and he sends the bat through the gate to get help. But I remember him being very protective of the bat um, because people saw it and thought the worst of him. But when it came to the crow, people believed him just to be really bad luck and to be a harbinger of death. I, Which probably isn't the kind of thing you'd want to be considered when you're in the military. I mean, you just need to think about, like, if you're going to have it be common that people have, like, rodents or whatever as spirit animals is you know show it to just be fairly common but i mean i would think people just are naturally going to place some kind of value on like you know if you've got this sentinel whose spirit animal is i don't know a cheetah and this sentinel whose spirit animal is a weasel i mean i can't even like say it and not put judgment in my tone i'm trying not to hear i'm trying um, i made val a spirit animal a snake on um sentinels of atlantis 
And I think, I think for a lot of us, she's a lot sly. Of, right? Because I think a lot of us who've read <laughs> Harry Potter don't have a problem with snakes, but some people might. So it's just like, just think about it and think about what you want to do and what you're. And we'll talk about spirit animals more than that. But with on that podcast, with your sentinel is like, what are the traits of a sentinel? And how do you want to embody that in your spirit animal thing? And then how do you pick? I don't think. You could either do the spirit animal as a re- reflection of your sentinel's soul, or it could just be, um, I think, is in vicious spirit animals have a very particular set of skill sets they can bring along with them. And sentinels that have a certain kind of spirit animal are good at certain things, or not, they're better at certain things than others. Um, and like guides who have certain kinds of spirit animals have certain abilities that other guides might not be as adept at. They can do it almost naturally. So you can do something that kind of has some kind of import imparts some kind of meaning with it. It could be a reflection of them. It's just be consistent. Um, because if you make like a spirit animal a reflection of someone's like soul, and then you give them a rodent, you would think that that would, um, read read poorly to people in that universe uh, and i recognize it's the spirit animal totems i know a lot of people consult spirit animal totems like for what to pick for spirit animals i typically don't consult that kind of thing because you can have the like the rat or something have like the noblest characteristics but i just can't translate rat to spirit animal because i don't think a spirit totem and spirit animal and for the sentinel thing to be at all the same thing no, but it's important for your for your story that you decide what these things mean to you and how they're going to translate into your narrative and be consistent, be consistent in your concepts across the board. Because in that consistency, um, your reader will be the most comfortable. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So somebody asked about the raccoon and uh, Sam's spirit animal being a raccoon. Um, Sam is a guide for starters, and the only in the, in the home verse, um, the only guides who have apex predators are alpha guides. Other guides have different types of animals that are a little bit more reflective of what suits their personality. Um, raccoons, yes, they're curious, but they're also very intelligent, and they and will make and use tools. Um, so they're very innovative. They're very innovative in the spirit in in the animal world, not just in, not in kind of any kind of totem, but as an actual animal, they're very innovative, um, and so that's why I picked a raccoon for Sam. So she's not an alpha guide, so she wouldn't have had like an apex predator, um, and I wanted something because she felt very disconnected from her guide side, something that was smaller that she could hold. So that's why I picked a, a smaller animal that, but I wanted to pick one. That was it. That was like quick-witted, very intelligent, and I thought the raccoon, in terms of the ability to use tools and adapt to that kind of thing, would be very reflective of something that would appeal to Sam. Yeah, I try not to do anything with animal symbolism. I might do something with animal traits, but symbolism can be radically different from how an animal is perceived. If you look into animal symbol, animal symbolism, I mean. It's like sometimes you like are looking for the traits you need and you're like, I want something that, rep- you know, exemplifies this. And it's like a groundhog. Really? That's what I'm going for. <laughs> no. <laughs> but what's what what methodology works for you is what you should go with. It's just trying to be consistent about how you implement it. Right. Do you have any more questions about like crafting your sentinels, crafting your sentinel, making one out of rock?
<laughs> of rock and blood and bone and magic. Well, okay. So I mean, Queenie said that she when she picked animals for April, she checked to make sure they wouldn't have terrible implications and no one could get bitchy. Actually, people might get bitchy no matter what you do. And what other people read into what you've written actually isn't kind of ultimately your responsibility. What's your responsibility as a writer is to convey your vision on the page and in a way that doesn't confuse people, right? So if, you're, if you've got something that's a little off outside of the beaten path, and this is maybe I didn't explain this well, um, that you convey your method, that your, your method, the method to whatever you're doing on the page, you can't just expect people to be able to infer what you've done, especially when you've decided to branch away from common tropes. Yeah, and Susan pointed out that when it comes to symbolism, the different cultures view it different ways. So a rat might be a great thing, say, um, uh, and probably would actually to, in in maybe China or something. But it it might not be somebody in the U.S. might not find that might not relate to that animal in the same way. So uh, that's why I tend to work more with traits of the animal itself as opposed to the symbolism of the animal because it, that's our right. Because a coyote is actually you know would be revered in some cultures and in other cultures it would be you know is seen as a scavenger. Um, same thing with the fox or the cow or. Um, I mean, I would say that in, in, in cultures where the cow is sacred, that having a cow spirit animal would be like an indication that you are somehow divine, that that your gifts were divine. Right. I mean, I would never give anybody a cow spirit animal. That's why I tend to no, try, me either. try to stay away from the symbolism of the animal that is in any way culturally entrenched, um, but rather work with, if anything, if anything, the traits of the animal itself. Now, one of the few times I've actually kind of ventured away from my own headcanon about spirit animals, I really do see Tony Stark as being feline. And I mean, it's just that's if you were to tell me, but I really wanted him to have a spirit guide he could fly with. So when I chose his spirit animal for um, demons, it was um, the bald eagle. Um, not because I actually would probably have seen him as something more like a panther or something normally. Because I do see him as having very feline type traits. But right, it, it does create that association. But I actually I kind of made a joke out of it that, you know, that it was like I ironic that considering how people perceived him, that that would be his spirit animal. But I really wanted him to be able to fly with his spirit animal. And I thought the bald eagle was John's spirit animal in from blue to green is a bald eagle, and when he finally confesses that to Rodney, Rodney's um what he says was, "I might as well, you know, tattoo a flag on my ass." <laughs> yeah, which is apparently a giant seagull. Yeah, Cinna, that cat is adorable. Look at that! Isn't that the cutest thing? Is it bigger or smaller than a cod? Cod? I don't think there's any cat exists that isn't deadly in some fashion. I mean, it's I just the size it. gets in their way. Right. <laughs> the best predator on earth. All eight pounds of it. I don't know which is bigger. Which is bigger? <laughs> size matters. No, I'm just kidding. Not really. 
But we'll we'll have another podcast where we'll talk about spirit animals at length, um, and about the um, implications of their use, um, whether or not you use them. Um, they rarely appeared in Sentinel Canon, so you can have them rarely appear in your fic, and I don't think anybody would get completely bent about it. I don't make a habit of using them extensively in my work, um, because, like I said, having a whole bunch of spirit animals running around it it. If you got one for each damn Sentinel and guy in your story, just imagine how many fucking Sentinel and Sentinels of Atlantis. Yeah, having to keep track of all of that. The bigger your cast is, the less you want to deal with Sentinels. Nah, dog. My favorite spirit animal that I've ever written is Keaton, and he's in Ascendant. He is um, uh, Tony's spirit animal. Keaton. So Keaton's my favorite. My, I mean, I tend to write Tony's spirit animals as a tiger, although I've made it other things as well. But it's just because Tony the tiger amuses me, and then once it was in my head, there yeah. it was, right? That's why I gave Steve the, the tiger, so, so so he could have a Tony and a tiger. To have Tony and a tiger. Um, <laughs> but, and then, and then, I mean, the, the story I've got that features spirit animals the most intensely is Vicious, but the story's named after Tony Spirit, right? Animal. So, but there you go. She, I mean, she is awesome. she is a character, though. I mean, more so than the other spirit guides, she's a full character in the story. So, and that's important. You need to decide. You know, when you're looking at 30k being our minimum, it's not our maximum for April, but this is a you know a more relaxed. It's it's usually in our calendar is the most relaxed challenge we've got. Um, I think that really the hot, the hot octane challenge is probably November for a lot of people if we're doing the 50k, but if you're, you know, if you're going down to 25k, which is our minimum now for November, that's your easy challenge. Uh, I find July very stressful personally. Um, it's very hard for me to hit that word count normally. Um, and so I put a lot of effort into the short story process. So for me, most of the time, most years, July is my high, my high octane challenge. So you need to decide how it's going to be for you. If you're going to hit the maximum, um, the minimum of 30K as your as your goal for April, then you, know, you just relax. That, that That's a thousand words a day. You just take your time. Just relax move through it but if you're looking to hit 50k in um april this time then that could be your high octane you just gotta you just gotta know where you're going for those of you who are doing the quantum bang uh, i would certainly encourage you in april to kind of relax relax take take the relaxed path and 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 you want to do some quantum bang dates and so and then we'll close the podcast yeah we are coming up oh i forgot to do the check-in thread today man Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just not I there. Forgot to. Um, so the fifteenth is we'll we will open soon for people to submit their their rough drafts. Um, it, and the submission is just a word count check. We don't actually read your your rough draft. I'm not interested in your rough draft. I'm not interested in reading anybody's rough draft. Maybe Kira's or Lady Holders or something. But I'd ask them directly. <laughs> I know people have had some stress about that. They're worried that we're like judging their rough draft, dude. I'm not even looking at it. Um, we don't. We don't have time for that, <laughs> right? I really don't. So we just verify it. We verify. Get your information off the form, and then we delete it because you know, otherwise it sits there in the database. So we delete it. We move on. So we'll. Will that process will be available to start turning them in 
probably in the next day or two, anytime through the 15th for the first round of claims. I believe our claiming is on the 21st. I think, I think. I think so. Yeah. Um, and then um, we will have a second, like a late submission on the 15th of April. And it's just, you got to be aware that you're going to, you're not giving the artist much time to work. So there you're, you might get an aesthetic or a mood board or something. So um, you want to give your artists, if you, so don't stress if you, if you can't make a, if you can't make April, if you, ugh, if you can't make March, just relax, hit April. You can also hit May, but you're not going to get anything but a banner with your title on it. That's it. We're just going to, there's going to be no art. So, um, and that's pretty typical. I could did some like checking around on rules. That's pretty typical that you can participate in a bang without art. We do like to do the marriage of the art and the story. But if you get your story done by May 15th and you missed all the art deadlines, just talk to me, you know, dude, just talk to me. <sighs> that's all I got. That's the important stuff on the quantum bang. Anything? Oh, but hey, I finished mine. <laughs> you did, yeah. <laughs> 115k boom is that all you you, you like that 100 and 100 plus for the quantum bang huh i mean it just seems to be yeah it's just that just seems to, be, it seems to be my hit spot my sweet spot right now in the um the, in the zero drafting um because they're both about the same yeah desert desert rolled over on 50k we know rogue rolled over 50k several people have a good job finished their rough drafts um i mentioned these these uh I mentioned those two people specifically because they. Yeah, that is just my rough draft. <laughs> yeah. And a rogue has a really hard time um, with longer works. I believe it's longer works. So, so yeah. Um, some sometimes these these novel lengths is really difficult for some people. And um, congratulations to everybody who's finished already, who is still plugging in and working on it. You guys are doing great. If you're freaked out, just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. And, you know, if for some reason things happen and you miss the deadlines, just just keep plugging away and tuck it. Let it sit for a little bit and then work on your second draft for next year. <laughs> you might have a really, don't stress it. You might have a really big head start on next year's quantum bangs. Just don't worry <laughs> about it. You do not need to. If you want to, if you want to tell me you're dropping out, that's fine. But you actually don't need to. If you don't turn in a story by May 15th, I know you're dropped out. It's it's like I'm. It's like my powers of deductive reasoning are awesome. Um, the only way I would chase somebody down is if they told me they were turning something in and they don't, then I would write them and go, I'd give them the chance to be like, hey, are you missing? Are you MIA? What's up? Um, but that's what the Sentinel thing. Uh, I actually find, for me, that the Sentinel side of it is the easiest of the three pieces of the thing. But the Spirit Guide, if you're going to do Spirit Guide world building, that that can wind up being very complicated and the guide pieces and what guide abilities are tend to be where things swing all over the place. So um, I don't know about you, but I find the Sentinel part of it to be the, actually the most straightforward. I mean, for me, I mean, the Sentinel, you know, picking the Sentinel is usually where I start because there are some characters I can write as a Sentinel and some characters I could write as a guide, but then there are other characters that I could not write as anything but a sentinel. Right. There's, or you just couldn't write them as a guide. So it's weird. Like we have perceptions of characters. Like I could only ever write Ian Edgerton as a sentinel, ever. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I am, I am hard. 
I don't think I could even read him as anything but a Sentinel. I mean, it, it's like it's like tied into my brain that way. I would only write Steve as a Sentinel, um, but I could read him either way. Steve McGarrett, that is. Tony, I can see either way. I've written him either way. I actually have a hard time finding guide potential characters to write him with. I sure don't see Gibbs as a guide. I've actually read him as a guide, but it always seems a little strange to me. But I've read it. I read it. I've read it and been able to kind of like put my huh to the side. But it's it was strange for me. Um, so some characters you just have a very strong reaction to one way or the other. Don't let anybody else's opinion though inform yours. If you really see a character could be really great, have great potential as a guide or a sentinel, then write that. It's just sometimes my choices are informed by the fact that I'm inflexible. I write Tony a lot in the Sentinel Guide universe, Denozo that is, and sometimes which he winds up is not about actually which one I see him in, but more reflection of the fact that the who I'm pairing him with, I'm inflexible about. But it was actually really nice to write Tony Stark with him because I see Tony Stark could be either as well. Looks like Kira's making noise, but I don't actually hear her. Well, there you are. Um. I'm here. I was, I got distracted by something stupid, which is like the par for the course for the week. Um, did anybody else have any other questions? Or did you already ask that? <laughs> I have well, not recently. I haven't asked that. I haven't gone up to look at the, yep, we don't have any pending questions. Okay. Well, I hope you guys found this really beneficial and that you are thinking about joining us for the April challenge. Um, Signups will be open through the 15th of April and I will start processing the ones we've already got so that they can be, um, see, so we can start putting up project files, which are due by the 25th. And then we're going to write from April 1st to April 30th. And then I will close the challenge on May 5th. Cinco de Mayo. I was like, why is that? <laughs> okay. And then um then we will we will have a little break and then it will be quantum bang time and then we will start with our next part of this year of the Sentinel, which will be Bonds in July. We can have tacos every day. I am all in for the tacos every day. One of my biggest disappointments in life is I didn't get a taco truck on my corner. I had one. <laughs> I had to move to another state. It's ridiculous. Who? Did you ask him if he could come with you? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm moving, dude. How do you feel? I mean, pot's legal there. <laughs> you can have pot. I mean, we, we, need a, we need to talk. Actually, what we do have is a really good tamale stand nearby. So mm. it's, not, it's not exactly a taco truck, but um, tamale stand I mean, is. It has potential. It's not bad. It has potential. Anyways, tacos are always acceptable. Breakfast tacos, lunch tacos, dinner tacos, just tacos. I'm pretty sure Taco Bell's sole reason for existence is the 2 a.m. taco. So when you need tacos at 2 a.m., you don't want taco truck tacos. I mean, you want Taco Bell tacos. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. but I, I could actually go to Taco Bell right now, actually. I could. I mean, that would be inappropriate, right? I'm an adult. <laughs> It's not inappropriate. You are an adult. <laughs> Go have Taco Bell. Anyways, I I hope that, like I said, I hope this was beneficial and that you guys um, got something out of it. And um, that if you're not participating as a writer, that you're looking forward to the reading and that you will join us in April to watch us, um, you know, make some stuff. We're going to write some stuff. We're going to write some Sentinels. 
we're going to dig in. And if you're interested in participating um, in the challenge and you have questions that you don't want to ask in public, please feel free to reach out to us. We're more than willing to answer your questions um, and help you through the process and, you know, help you figure out posting if you're worried about that. You know, just just reach out. That's why we're here. Anything else, Jilly? I'm good. Okay. Well, say good night then. Night, everyone.